So I'm going to talk um, for a little bit on newly diagnosed AML and hitting the right target. So there are lots of targets in AML, and the biology of the disease has actually um, been increasingly well understood over the last several years, or at least new discoveries being made suggesting that we understand the biology better. But there are lots of targets, and depending on who you talk to, there are favorites. So if you just look here, we have FLIP3, we have BCL2, we have IDH1, we have uh, leukemia stem cells. So lesson number one is a target isn't necessarily a mutation, right? So when we're talking about hitting targets in AML, what I'd like to do is talk about the biology of the disease and talk about drugs and how they might be attacking the specific biology of the disease, not necessarily just an individual mutation. And I think that comes as a surprise to many people, most especially to patients. So when you're talking about... Um, all of these different targets and new cool biology, it's a little bit disappointing then to realize that until recently, and part of the reason why we were excluded from this meeting for so long, is because it's seven and three low intensity chemo, supportive care hospice, and clinical trials. And that has been the party line despite the evolution of my previous slide, which shows lots of interesting biology. The treatment planning matched the options. So you gave 7 and 3 to people who looked like that. You gave low-intensity therapy to people who looked like that. You gave supportive care to, that's my father-in-law. And you gave clinical trials to anybody who lived close enough to an academic center and who could be bothered to schlep in and pay for parking and do all of the things that are needed for a clinical trial. But that was it. And that was actually what allowed us to give talks that were quite similar for many years in a row. But then came summer of 2017. And now we actually have... Um, now we have new things to talk about. So we have mitostorin with a target of FLIP3. We have CPX351 with a target of patients with secondary AML, historically a very difficult group to treat. Enacidinib, IDH2, gemtuzumab, ozogamycin, CD33, and ivocidinib with a target of IDH1. So now we have new toys to play with. What we need to do is figure out how to use them. And the bulk of the talk today is going to be focusing on the new FDA approved labels. So we have labels and we have guidelines that we can learn how to use them. So number one, seven and three has now been beaten in three randomized trials by the addition of gemtuzumab, by the addition of mitostorin, and in comparison to CPX351. So at least one is thinking about it, that if you have the Schwarzenegger-like patient that you're thinking about intensive therapy, you want to think about the scenarios where you might actually have to at least consider something other than 7 and 3. So starting with gemtuzumab, gemtuzumab was initially approved in 2000 for CD33 positive AML in first relapse in patients um, older than 60 and those not considered candidates for cytotoxic chemotherapy. In, in a, it has a long story that is beyond the scope of this meeting, but it was actually brought back in 2017, largely by substantial data after withdrawal from the market that indicated that we might not be using it correctly and optimally, and largely academic center studies um, 
prompted the uh, resurrection of the drug and the restoration to the marketplace now with approval in drugs for newly diagnosed CD33 positive AML in adults and children two years and older um, and also for relapse disease. So this drug is actually um, an anti-CD33 antibody that's linked to colichiomycin. The idea is that it links onto CD33 positive cells. The complex, the gemtuzumab complex is internalized and then um, colichiomycin is released and causes DNA double-stranded breaks and hopefully cell death. And if you look at the alpha 0701, otherwise known as the Myla-France trial, this was a phase three trial in previously untreated de novo AML patients ages 50 to 70, 271 patients. They got seven and three with or without gemtuzumab, but in a different dose and schedule than what you're thinking of if you're thinking back to the original days in 2000. So this was three milligrams per meter squared on days one, four, and seven. The seven and three was standard. I get it. It's boring. Seven and three is always a little bit different depending on where you practice, but it's approximately standard here in that they were using 60 of donorubicin days one to three and cytarabine 200 days one to seven. I don't want to spend an hour on the discussion of whether it should be 100 for seven days or 200 for seven days. It's close enough, and they both... um are used as the standard arm in, uh, in phase three trials. So here, the important thing, though, is to note the low and fractionated dose of the gemtuzumab schedule. It went on to be given on day one in um, consolidation cycles, which were offered. And here, too, just to note, if you're following the AML space, the primary endpoint of this trial was EFS, event-free survival, not overall survival. So historically, complete remission and overall survival have been the outcomes of interest in AML, and those of most interest to the FDA. This is event-free survival. So here, just looking at some baseline characteristics of the patients, they were... um what you would think with the median age in the 60s. These were mostly good performance status patients, a la my first uh, or second slide. So these are patients who can tolerate intensive chemotherapy. And if you look, um, there there was a spread of white blood cell counts, some proliferative patients, some not. Most of them had intermediate cytogenetics, and it's noted that uh, 20% of the patients on this trial were positive for a FLT3 ITD. So here, if you look at event-free survival, what you will see is a significant improvement in event-free survival with the addition of gemtuzumab to standard 7 and 3. And this is what drives um, this as a new regimen to consider for these patients um, who were included in the phase 3 trial. Again, statistically significant uh, with a uh, p-value of 0.0002 for event-free survival. Of note, this actually was not significant different with respect to overall response. And uh, so the CR rates weren't that different, but the event-free survival was, which begs the question of why, what's actually happening? Is there a difference in CR? Is there a difference perhaps in MRD negative CR? We don't necessarily know the answer to that question, but I will be discussing MRD in my talk in a little bit. Looking at safety, the gemtuzumab arm had significantly increased rates on 
of hemorrhage and prolonged thrombocytopenia, but there was no increase in early mortality with the addition of GO, which was a 3.8% early mortality versus 2.2% in the control. So this also should put you kind of, what should you be looking for for response rates for in intensive chemotherapy in 50 to 70 year olds? You do want to have a relatively high response rate. You want to have those CR rate, uh, complete remissions of over 60%. You want to have um, also reasonably low early mortality with current supportive care and measures. You should be able to um, have numbers that look like this. And again, the toxicities here should be noted and part of your care of the patients, but they did not contribute to an increase in early mortality that was significant. There was VOD noted in um, six patients, 4.6% uh, who got the GO versus two in the control arm. VOD gets a lot of discussion. It's beyond the scope of this meeting, but I've mentioned it in an earlier session that one is frightened of it because it's a bad toxicity, and yet there are potential mitigation strategies that are investigated in order to um, prevent or, or at least uh, reduce the risk of it in patients going on to transplant. It should also be noted that this um, dose and schedule is significantly reduced and attenuated from previously in gemtuzumab, so this is expected to matter in subsequent rates um, of VOD seen in transplant. If you look at the subgroup analysis for EFS in the um, alpha trial, the GEO um, arm was favored in all of the subgroups except in unfavorable cytogenetics. So less than 60 versus over than 60, PS0, 1, or 2, low white count, higher white count, FLT3 ITD versus no FLT3 ITD. So that's interesting. Make a mental note of that. And then um, in the percentage of CD33 expression, which is a kind of an elusive um thing to, uh, to think about. In unfavorable cytogenetics, it is uh, clear that there was no specific benefit for gemtuzumab, but actually it is not excluded from the label because so many places have weeks before they get their cytogenetics reports back that the feeling was that it would not be reasonable to exclude patients who would potentially benefit from it because their cytogenetics report wasn't back, and there was no evidence that it was going to be causing harm in that subgroup. Moving on to another new toy, so Midastorin. Midastorin is officially indicated for newly diagnosed um, AML that is FLT3 positive as detected by an FDA-approved test in combination with, again, standard cytarabine and donorubicin induction and also in consolidation. So here, mitostorin in AML. So this is actually a pretty long story. And it's important to note that as FLT3 inhibitors go, you will hear frequently in uh, lectures that there are these so-called dirty inhibitors. And then as you get into next generation inhibitors, they become more selective. This one also inhibits VEGF, PKC, KID, and PDGFR. And this is not, by the way, necessarily a disadvantage of an inhibitor, either a FLT3 inhibitor or any inhibitor. To hit multiple targets in a disease where you have multiple problems going on is not necessarily a bad thing. It just makes it more complicated to fully understand what is being hit when you use the drug. That said, the ITD is in about 25% of younger adults generally confers an adverse prognosis in younger adults. I will just caution you that it matters what the co-mutations are. So we tend to sort of see FLT3 and immediately be thinking uh, transplant for younger patients. That is currently a standard of care. But do have a look and see what the allele burden is of the FLT3 and also whether there is a concomitant NPM1 mutation. That may adjust your thinking. In addition to that, for older patients, it is not as clear that FLT3 confers such a negative 
negative prognosis and certainly should not be an indication to not treat an older patient if you otherwise would be considering therapy. Now, Ratify is a phase three double-blind study of chemotherapy plus mitostorin in patients under 60 with newly diagnosed FLT3-mutated AML. This was a Herculean effort that took a long time and a lot of participating groups, as you can see in my box um, on the side, took a worldwide effort to accrue this trial in a long time. But basically, it's newly diagnosed patients between 18 and 60 with activating FLT3 mutation. There was a stratification by TKD versus ITD and ratio of uh, less than 0.7 versus greater than equal to 0.7. I can see wheels turning in the audience that people are saying do I even know what that means? Do I get an allele ratio on my report back? You may not, and that's a point of confusion. We can save that for the panel. In this trial, you had induction with or without uh, mitostorin and consolidation with or without mitostorin. Again, semi-standard seven and three with Donna Rubison on for three days, uh, 60 per meter squared, and cytarabine 200 times 7. Here, as in uh, most typical phase 3 AML trials, the primary endpoint is OS. The complete response rates here were interesting because initially when they looked by day 60, there wasn't a statistically significant difference in the CR, but actually a little bit uh, later on um, there was in CR in induction slash consolidation. And I would just make a mental note, not only with respect to this trial, but with respect to AML trials in general, that the time when you make an assessment of response is probably not something that should just be set in stone on a particular day. You might have platelet recovery happening two weeks later if you just wait a little bit longer. So this is an important point. When are you assessing your final response in AML? At any rate here, the addition of mitostorin to 7 and 3 improved overall survival, so it met its primary endpoint with four-year survival in the mito arm of 51.4% and in the placebo arm of 44.2%. And this is the, the trial, which is now this um, graph has been displayed in a million meetings, and this led to the um, approval of the drug. So if you look at the non-hematologic events, again, looking at heme toxicity and leukemia trials is um, not something that, uh, that you, you will have myelosuppression and myelosuppression-related toxicities in all patients. But here, the one that um, pops out as significant was rash and desquamation. Again, that's something that is in... Um uh, generally in uh, not a severe form resulting in a... Um, uh, not resulting in a dose reduction. Moving on to another drug, I want to keep the pace going. We're going to talk about CPX351. So I've been talking a lot about donorubicin and cytarabine. So okay, can you just make it better? We've been using it for 50 years. I think that there were interesting discussions about the death of chemotherapy and everything is targeted and no more chemo. Well, there's still chemo in AML. And chemo has probably, not probably, definitely cured more patients than anything else to date. But the concept here was to improve upon the regimen that has been considered standard for half a century. This is indicated for the treatment of adults with newly diagnosed therapy-related AML or AML with myelodysplasia-related changes, specifically. This is um, a drug that is offered in liposomes, and what it does is give you a fixed 5 to 1 molar ratio of cytarabine to donorubicin with the idea that the delivery of the two drugs simultaneously to the cells and to the bone marrow provides a pharmacologic 
technologic advantage. Here, there's a phase three study of CPX versus standard induction in older patients with newly diagnosed high-risk AML. So the key eligibility here previously untreated. Uh, These were, uh, the trial was in patients 60 to 75 who were able to tolerate intensive chemotherapy, and there were stratifications depending on whether you had therapy-related versus AML with a history of MDS, um, and there was also a stratification for age. Here, just to make things interesting, the cytarabine was 100 times 7 versus 200. You just got to give that up and say whatever. And going forward, you, get, you got induction 1 to 2 cycles, and then you had patients um, in CR who were then able to get uh, consolidation or actually go on to stem cell transplant if that was part of the treatment plan. So here, you can see there was a significantly improved response rate with CPX351. Um, you can see the uh, CR, the blue is the CPX, the orange is uh, 7 and 3. You can see CR and also CR plus CRI. So these are significant improvements um, in the uh, investigational arm. And also meeting the primary endpoint of CPX, improving um, overall survival compared to um, 7 and 3. So Again, this is what's led um, to the approval and the current availability um, of the drug. If you look at uh, the most frequently reported adverse events, so the way that these things uh, work is that you have a line down the middle, and if you're on the... I don't know which your side. So if you're on the left, then it's a, a CPX351. If you're on the right, then um, it's 7 and 3. Basically, the bottom line is that there was prolonged neutrophil and platelet recovery with CPX, but there's no increase in early mortality. So again, thinking about that when you're treating your patients and you're getting out to those higher numbers of days after treatment, day 24, 25, 26, you're expecting those prolonged cytopenias, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to get a CR, and in the case of the trial, there was no increase in mortality. Okay. Targeted therapy. Hate that word, but that's what everyone's calling it. So targeted therapy for AML is here in that there are some mutationally directed therapies. We've already talked about FLIP3. Now I'm going to talk about a couple of others. But I do want to say in every slide, because I think it's important for patients, too, that a target doesn't have to be a mutation. And I do want to just make a plug here on behalf of the patients. They are so frightened if they are found not to have a mutation, because they think that the treatment isn't going to work if they don't have an identified mutation. So I think we're doing a disservice as a community if we don't sort of explain all of the different treatment options and have them not worry if they see a uh, next generation sequencing report, which actually doesn't have a mutation on it. That said, what I'm talking about here is we have two new FDA-approved therapies to think about. We have enacidinib, which is indicated for um, adult patients with relapsed or refractory AML with um, an IDH2 mutation, again, as detected by an FDA-approved test. That becomes important for logistical reasons, which we will probably get to in the panel as I am asked over and over again about what happens if I can't get the test. But we want to get the testing done, so it's important to check your patients, especially those with relapsed disease, because you also have ivocidinib, which is an 
IDH1 inhibitor and indicated for adults with relapse refractory AML with um, a susceptible IDH1 mutation, again, as measured by an FDA-approved test. So welcome back to organic chemistry. You will now sit here for three hours and relearn the Krebs cycle. I'm kidding. That doesn't have to happen. But you do have to think about the um, citric acid cycle, the Krebs cycle, and the fact that DNA methylation is linked to citrate metabolism via isocitrate dehydrogenase enzymes one and two. And it's actually kind of exciting and fun to realize that this thing that we all hated learning is actually very, very relevant and important in HEMONC and not only in AML. So here, these enzymes catalyze oxidative decarboxylation of isocitrate to produce alpha-ketoglutarate. Alpha-ketoglutarate, you may recall, is an essential cofactor for tethydroxylases and also for histone demethylases. And IDH mutants convert alpha ketoglutarate to um, 2 hydroxyglutarate. So it's interesting to think that 2 hydroxyglutarate is an oncometabolite. This can actually be measured by mass spec. And maybe down the road, we're going to be looking for these levels to see what's happening with patients on these drugs. But we're not doing that yet. Okay. Looking at enosidinib first, this is a phase 1-2 study design. So this was a dose escalation study in advanced team malignancies. You had relapsed refractory AML. You also had some untreated AML in that group. And then you had a bit of a mixed bag of hematologic malignancies. And the phase 2 expansion was for enosidinib of 100 milligrams daily. The key endpoints were safety and tolerability, and, um, of course, assessment of clinical activity. And here you have it. So you have this is a single-agent um, oral therapy in relapse refractory AML with an overall response rate of 40%, a CR rate of 19%, median response duration of 5.8 months, and the median overall survival um, in uh, uh, the relapse refractory AML group was 9.3 months with a median overall survival in CR of 19.7 months. And um, there are s some specific side effects to think about when treating patients here. One is indirect hyperbilirubinemia, which does not mean that their liver isn't working. This is something that you have to um, be careful about because patients should not necessarily be stopped or changed in their therapy just because of this sort of laboratory abnormality that's seen. And secondly is differentiation syndrome, which does require some more care. You'll remember the days of using things like ATRA in APL. So differentiation syndrome here has to be managed, and it's beyond the scope of this talk to talk about that specifically. I will mention, so the indication for the drug and the FDA-approved indication is in relapsed disease, but there are data that are also emerging from the study on responses in newly diagnosed patients, and it's certainly a goal for the future to try to figure out which patients might benefit from single-agent oral therapy without chemotherapy, and there appear to be some who fall into that category. Now, if you look um, here for the, uh, so this is now looking at ivocidinib. So this is the, uh, again, a multi-center, um, multi multi-arm trial looking in relapse disease. Some untreated patients, again, in a dose escalation trial looking for safety and tolerability, but also for um, activity. The idea here was to, um, uh, to measure in the uh, next phase 500 milligrams daily in continuous cycles. And here you have the 
the data. Again, this is single agent activity with an overall response rate of over 40%, duration of six and a half months, CR in about 20% of the patients with a duration of nine months, CRCRH, so this is looking at categories of CR where you don't necessarily have complete hematologic recovery. This is important and is becoming... um, an emerging thing to look at as we look at new therapies in AML because it used to be that CR kind of with a little letter under it just meant that you weren't hitting CR and we weren't sure that it was important. Actually, it might be very important because these drugs might have myelosuppression beyond the time when the complete response was assessed on the clinical trial. So things like CR, CRI, CRH, you have to look at all of these and they're important to consider in the total response. So CRCRH here of 30% with a duration of 8.2 months, and the median overall survival for CR patients wasn't uh, reached. Here are some specific adverse events to consider. QT prolongation, again, some differentiation syndrome, um, and then, uh, of course, um, anemia decreased platelets. So these are more the heme tox effects that you expect with leukemia therapy. But I think that when you look at this, so these are oral agents, enosidinib and ivosidinib, which have clear um, and important single-agent activity, but again, most AML patients don't have these mutations, so we don't want to exclude the rest of AML. There are plenty of patients with different mutation profiles, but it does make it quite important to try to lobby to be able to get this test done. Now, the reality is that most patients with AML still do die within a year after their diagnosis. When they have relapse refractory disease, if you look here at the intensive salvage regimens, the the, um, third one on the list was a large phase three trial that I was actually the um, lead on, and in a very depressing result, basically the investigational agent was the same as pretty much any salvage that you want. So if it's blag, flag, clag, schmag, whatever it is, it works equally equally poorly, unfortunately, in the salvage setting. Hypomethylating agents actually might do arguably a little bit better because for some relapsed patients, it's very hard to get them through the chemo, and they may do better puttering along with a hypomethylating agent, although that is absolutely not one of the... um, label indications. It should be noted that gemtuzumab, which is back on the market, as we discussed earlier, is approved for relapse refractory AML in 57 relapse patients treated on days 1, 4, and 7, again with a low dose of 3 milligrams per meter squared. There were some CRs. So it's not what we want to see. We want to do better for these patients overall, but it's an option to potentially consider. Okay, so new things. These are not approved yet, underlined, not approved yet, but we are hoping that they are coming soon and maybe very soon. So novel FLT3 inhibitors, next generations, quizartinib and gilteritinib. These are second generation, highly potent and selective FLT3 inhibitors. Highly potent and selective doesn't necessarily mean better, but it means different and importantly so. And both of these have beaten um, salvage chemotherapy in phase three trials of relapse refractory AML. The full results of all of these are emerging and coming out. There is an approval already in Japan of gilteritinib. FDA approval is anticipated here, but not yet, and we still are awaiting absolutely final results from these trials. But there are ongoing clinical trials in newly diagnosed patients and in post-transplant maintenance. We have a lot of figuring out to do about which um, FLT3 inhibitors to use. So I will repeat 
50 times, all of these new drugs should make us enroll patients onto clinical trials more, not less. And there is a fear that with new drugs available that patients will feel that their problems are solved and that they don't need clinical trials. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Glasdegib is an interesting drug, which is an oral inhibitor of the hedgehog pathway. This had improved overall survival in a randomized trial compared with low-dose cytarabine, and FDA approval is expected here. Again, going over the pathway and the mechanism of action is beyond the scope of what I can do right now. And then finally, venetoclax, which is a selective inhibitor of BCL2. This is an approved drug, but not in AML. This is approved in CLL, and you're going to hear lots more about venetoclax, I would say, in the next two days. But we've been excited to get in on the action here. This has a um, mechanism of action, so through um, inhibition of BCL2. So again, going back to the beginning of my talk, targeting, what are we targeting? In this case, we're targeting BCL2, and BCL2 over expression in uh, cancer allows evasion of apoptosis. BCL2 has been uh, shown to be overexpressed in AML, and venetoclax is a, um, is a selective inhibitor. We are seeing 50 to 70 percent response rates, CR, CRI, CRH, in combination with azacitidine, decitabine, and low-dose cytarabine. These have been presented at various meetings in abstract form. Manuscript has actually been um, Manuscripts have been um, submitted, so the complete data are um, going to be uh, widely available. The responses are seen across cytogenetic and molecular subgroups, including FLT3 and IDH and TP53. These are very small subgroups in relatively small trials, but at least opens up the possibility of so-called mutation agnostic, or however you want to call it, therapy, something that might be more broadly applicable. Um, confirmatory phase three trial results versus as azacitidine alone are anticipated, and again, FDA approval is expected but does not yet exist. I would like to thank my team, and it gives me great pleasure to bring back Dr. Sungmin Lee to um, go through the wild, crazy world of your 500 gene mutation report. Thank you very much.